Welcome back to Nearbound Marketing. I'm Logan Lyles with Teamwork.com. I've got the one and only Chris Walker, CEO of Refine Labs. Chris, how's it going, man? Logan, good to see you again. Good to be back on a new podcast, but I think this might be the third podcast we've done together officially. So looking forward to uh, diving in on this one. Yeah, I was trying to remember if it was a second or third. I think we had two rounds on B2B growth. I think so. And then have done some content with Megan. And so it's good to circle back with you, man. We're both just coming off the Nearbound Summit here recently. And, you know, the way that I've been thinking about Nearbound marketing is really anytime you're marketing with folks outside of your marketing org, both your internal evangelists, which can start at the C-level and go down to your internal employees, and obviously those external evangelists, whether they're influencers, content creators, or partners, And one of the things is I've been thinking about this concept I've brought up to people is going back to when you guys started Demand Gen Live, there was a partnership between yourself and Gaetano where it wasn't just, hey, let's have Gaetano on to the podcast, but it was a regular thing. Curious if we might, you know, jump back to that and talk about that as kind of an experiment and why you guys did that, how you did it, and maybe how it changed the initial jumping into demand gen live with someone else outside of the organization. Yeah, I mean, first off, I think it's fine if people want to wrap like nearbound marketing around this stuff. But to me, it's just marketing. And so I'm not really sure that we need to attach nearbound to this specific thing just for the record. Yeah. But yeah, so Gatano Denardi and I were friendly on LinkedIn. COVID happened like the week that everything shut down. There was like a bunch of frenzy. People didn't were locked down, didn't know what to do. There were some like sales Zooms that were popping up that were hosted by like a person like Scott Lees or Amy Volus. Mm-hmm. And then we, I noticed that I went to it. I thought, hey, this was cool. Like a hundred salespeople showed up, but there's no one doing anything for this for marketing. Katana, you want to do something like this next week? And so we did episode one of Demand Gen Live about a week into the COVID lockdown in 2020. And we did one, 17 people showed up. We were there for like 60, 90 minutes. We had a great time. And afterwards we got off the phone and said, hey man, I had, I personally had fun with that. And he said, yeah, I did too. Do you want to just do it again next week? So then we did it again next week. And over that time, we did more than a hundred episodes together for almost a hundred weeks in a row. Very few Tuesdays we took off during that, that period of time. It was a collaboration. We both got immense mm-hmm. benefits personally from it, as well as my business. During that time, I also did many of them with CMOs that I respected. We had Dave Gerhardt that we did a monthly event with. I did some with Latney Conan of Sixth Sense mm-hmm. back in that time. And this is not like me thinking like in a near bound way. It's me looking at who are the people that have great perspectives that are talking about the same things that my audience cares about. How do I bring them in so they can share their perspective? And then also they tend to have audiences. So how are we able to collaborate and cross share audiences? And to me, that's just like a through and through, whether you want to call it influencer, I look at it as key opinion leader. Now, I think that influencer and key opinion leader are two different things. Mm-hmm. You having a key opinion leader strategy in marketing where you're looking at the people that have great opinions that your audience cares about and then bringing those people into your marketing, I think is smart and ideally on like recurring or long term type of partnerships, not a one off. Yeah. Tell me, because that's the first time I've heard you distinguish those two, influencer versus key opinion leader. How do you distinguish between those two? And why do you think those definitions are important? So I think influencer marketing is a company paying for distribution. Hey, like 
we got this new product or here's this video. Can you post it on your LinkedIn? We know you have 100,000 followers. So just for distribution. And I think a key opinion leader is actually shaping the story and shaping the use cases for how the product is being used and using it in real life and talking about the things that they're learning and being able to use that and actually lead the opinion of how do we use this product or how do we execute this strategy or something like that, that brings back benefits to the company and the partnership. And an influencer, you're just getting the distribution. I think in a key opinion leader, you're also getting strategy injected back into your company. And so that's a very, like key opinion leader is the number one marketing strategy in medical device and pharma, at least medical device, maybe some pharma companies. Mm -hmm. And it's been that way for 20 years. Find physicians that really believe in your product that have seen great results and have them be the person that's evangelizing the product and saying, hey, we tried it in this way, or we ran this clinical trial and found out that you could use the product for these types of patients too. And they're bringing insights back to you and you're compensating them in for meta physicians it's a little bit more complicated because of the sunshine act you can't pay physicians unless yeah. for certain work but in marketing like you can all that stuff is fair game so i do see a big distinction here and i think companies should think about that when they think about influencer marketing because a majority of the values and key opinion leaders mm-hmm. not necessarily in the distribution yeah so you're distinguishing between those two not necessarily how you structure the partnership or whether or not there's some sort of compensation to that individual. It's more about, are they involved in the co-creation of the content, not just the distribution of the content, right? Because it It's not just the content. Yeah. It's not just the content. It's like, so let's give an example. So Demandbase and I partner up at some point. This is fictitious. Demandbase and I partner up sometime, and then I'm working with two of their biggest customers in a consulting agreement, and I'm in there using the product. And then I figure out, hey, if we like separate this intent here, and then we do this, then we got this result and what are your customers? Oh, they're not doing that. Here is a strategy and use case that I can feed back to you and I'm going to promote it because we found out a better way to use your product. And that's, it's a whole different thing than, hey, we just launched this new product. Here's a hundred bucks to post about it on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And it's interesting when you look at a lot of quote unquote influencers that are promoting products, they don't even use the products they're promoting. Right. And so I think that to actually like realize a lot of that benefit in a long-term fruitful partnership, the person that is quote unquote promoting your product must be a power user or an evangelist of it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really echoes what we heard Arthur Castillo share in a previous episode. He was talking about, he didn't use the term key opinion leaders as you're talking about today, using the term influencers, but the influencers that they chose to work with at Chili Piper were exactly what you're saying there. People who had actually solved the problem, used their product, and therefore could speak to it in very tangible ways. They were involved in conversations with their customers and their prospects on how to actually use the product. So that's why they partnered with like KD, Kevin Dorsey and Beck Holland, as opposed to just people who have influence in the B2B sales space. They had influence and they're creating content. So you could call them an influencer or a content creator, but with your definition, it really lines up with, they were partnering up with key opinion leaders for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the other thing I wanted to dive into with you, Chris, you had a great post yesterday talking about the $50 million in Hero Pipeline you guys have driven, $14 million in ARR and net new close one revenue that is really attributable to your efforts on LinkedIn. And many people cite you as an example of a CEO, an executive building their personal brand on LinkedIn. But what I think a lot of people don't necessarily talk about is that you guys have either systematically or organically, which is what I want to dig into, you guys have activated other evangelists to build their personal brand within Refine Labs that has really contributed to that 
as well. And then I want to get into how you guys measure ROI because you mentioned four distinct things in that post that we could we could unpack there. But how do you guys think about kind of scaling that evangelism among personal brands within Refine Labs? Yeah. And so just to be clear, measured through self-reported attribution against closed one deals, the primary buyer that comes in, this is, hey, I want to talk to your sales team. We asked them, how did you hear about us? They write LinkedIn or some form of LinkedIn in that. It gets automatically categorized and calculated like processed and then copied to the opportunity and then tracked all the way to close one revenue. And the measurement on LinkedIn specifically, 50 million in Hero Pipeline, 14 million in close one revenue. And that does not include an additional 20 million in revenue, close one from the podcast over the past two years. So we look, we measure those as two separate things, even though they sort of go together. It's $34 million in total of close one business over the past two years in this execution. And so how do you think about getting this done at your company. And the easiest way to say this is that the executives at your company prioritize it and do it themselves. It's really not complicated. And being committed to this as a primary way, maybe the most impactful way to grow your business over the next five years is to be able to activate a strategy like this inside of your company, whether you're 10 people or a thousand. The first step is always getting key executives to actually execute the strategy for themselves, which demonstrates to the organization, this is a fucking priority in our company. And the CEO is investing four or six hours a week and getting this done. And then all of a sudden, you implement self-reported attribution and a couple other key basic ways to measure things. And then all of a sudden, you see people that come into the website, tier one account, target account on the website. They say, how did you hear about us? I've been listening to your CEO's LinkedIn or your podcast for the past three months and love it. I want to talk about what your product can do for me. I saw your CMO at this event speaking, and then I got hooked on her LinkedIn content, and all of a sudden I hear and want to talk to you. And you push that type of data out to the whole company. And so the entire company is seeing, hey, our tier one accounts and stuff like that, we're getting good signals here. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it changes the talent that comes into your organization, and it changes what talent exists in your organization. It also changes what talent leaves your organization. And the organization shifts because the executives and the culture change and the overall business strategy changes. And so then all of a sudden, it's not just the CEO and the other you know, key shareholders. Now, all of a sudden, the VP levels do it. And then you have an SDR that's getting popularity and doing it. And everybody in the company feels a lot more comfortable to go and take action around it because they see executives doing it and practicing it, which happens at almost no companies. Sure, mm -hmm. there's some enablement. We have a LinkedIn love Slack channel where people share posts and can comment. Sure, we give people a LinkedIn accelerator training where we train them on the basic things that we use, quote unquote, growth hacks, the basic strategies that we use to get high reach on LinkedIn and accelerate follower growth. And sometimes we share content that where we do a LinkedIn takeover and everyone's posting the same thing around the same time so that we like basically the entire, we break LinkedIn and everyone uses it. Sure, we have strategies like that. But none of those strategies matter if you don't have people feel comfortable posting, which always starts with the CEO and the executive team. And so that's the most clear cut answer. You want to put a Band-Aid on it, delegate it to your social media manager. You want to solve it for yourself. CEO, you post four times a week. Mm -hmm. You figure out how to make it work. You get engagement on it that people like. You see the comments. You see the stuff coming in. You start believing in it. Your company starts believing in it, too. There's like nothing more basic or simple about how to get this done. And I've, I, you just watch it over and over with the people that have success. They all follow the exact same formula. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So much of, you know, you could term this employee advocacy as, you know, kind of, I think the dated way to approach it. And it's always 
let's get everyone posting and let's just put out this general message. And maybe there's a little bit of training behind it, but usually not. And starting with a smaller group and starting from the top, I think is definitely the way to go for someone who's a CEO or executive level and they want to follow that formula. Chris, what have been some of the mechanisms for you to remain insanely consistent, to be able to dedicate time to it while still running the business and doing all of the other things? Because that's one of the the quick, you know, common objections is, Chris, I'd love to do this. I don't have the time. And maybe they start out, they gain a little traction, but they don't have a system for it. So then it's not repeatable. So they can't get to the point where they're getting that feedback, those early wins and getting that groundswell within the organization. So what are some of the things tactically that you've done that have helped you in the early days remain consistent and then stay consistent day over day over you know multiple years in LinkedIn yourself? Step one is realizing that this is the highest leverage activity that you can do on your time for your go-to-market strategy across your entire company. Founders love to sell, to go out and pitch a low probability deal that they win at 10% and spend 10 sales processes on three different calls to try and, and end up closing one deal. And they end up investing all that time to get one deal and talk to 10 companies. And then when you realize that you can impact your entire sales and marketing engine in a positive way by doing this and reach thousands of accounts, founders love going to a conference and speaking to 40 people for 35 minutes that they pay to be on stage and they pay for the <laughs> travel and they end up spending $10,000 in a couple of days out of the office to speak to 45 people. And I talk to 50 to 150,000 people every day in my video to realize that over time, it's the highest leverage activity you can do across your entire go-to-market is step one. And then compare it. When you say, I don't have time, then compare what I just said to the shit that you spend time on. You'll realize you can find four hours to do this if you're actually committed to it and you realize the impact. Step two, commit to it. Realize that it's a huge opportunity. Make a commitment to doing it. Just like if you're an executive and you go to the gym every morning at 6 a.m. I go to the gym every morning at 6 a.m. And from 7.30 to 8 a.m. every single day, just like I go to the gym, I make a LinkedIn post. Not that complicated. Build it, like put it in your calendar, build a habit, be committed to it and do it like you do any other thing that you've done well in your career and in your life. We use time. And then number three, create a system around it where a system, we use three hours or four hours every single Tuesday where all the content creation happens. It always happens on video as the first medium. Mm -hmm. There is a, now I have a two-person team that actually goes through and takes that content and gets it posted, subtitles added, titles to the podcast, posted on podcasts and YouTube and things like that. Get the clips chopped down for short form social where I actually post and write the copy myself because I truly believe that's the only way that it's gonna truly work and break through. I don't think you can go like the stuff that I'm talking about. You can't ghostwrite. Nobody else knows this stuff than me. No one has what. And the same thing for you. It's not like I'm special. The same thing for you. Nobody has what's in your brain. Mm -hmm. And so I actually, during my 730 to 8 a.m. block every morning, I have to go out and I pick the video that I want to talk about. I write 2000 characters of copy. I get the post out. I put a link to the most relevant piece of content or podcast episode in the comments. And I answer the first five to 15 minutes of comments before I keep going on with my day and that's ingrained in my day of how I yeah. operate. Yeah. And then that investment of time of four to six hours a week for four and a half years sustained period of time has had well over $40 million in revenue driven just through those activities. Yeah. When I started, I had zero employees. I had one customer pay me $5,000 a month. I had less than a thousand followers. Nobody knew me. 
What most founders would do at that case is they would hire an outsourced SDR firm to book the meeting so that they could do founder sales and fucking scrape their knees and work really hard to close a couple of deals. Yeah. And there's just like in the reality is there's just a much better way to invest your time and go to market as a CEO today. Yeah. I love that you keep, you know, bringing it back to that comparison of what founders end up doing with their time investment in any go-to-market, you know, jumping in as the executive sponsor on that big ticket deal or spending money to go speak to, you know, a small group, you know, a conference where they get a breakout session of 35 people or something like that. So what I hear you saying there, Chris, for you, obviously you guys have built out the system and it's matured as the team has grown, but it was really those two weekly habits of a dedicated time to create content and then every week, and then a day, so a weekly time to create content in a typical format, starting with video, starting with some sort of interview, Q&A is a popular format for you guys so that you can be responding to questions in your market. And then the daily time where you're not starting from scratch, you're getting content assets that have been optimized from your team. And then you're writing about those things that you've already spoken to. Am I getting that right? Like those two pieces are really the foundation, right? 100%. And most people would say, I don't have three hours to record podcasts and I don't have 30 minutes to write this LinkedIn post. Let's ship it out to a ghostwriter in the Philippines or let's ship it out to a ghostwriter for a thousand bucks a month as if that person understands marketing at the same level I do or whatever mm -hmm. specialty that you have, as if a ghostwriter is going to understand the subject matter that you're an expert in at the same level. It's not that simple. And even just paraphrasing what's said in a video is very difficult to get the message across in the way that you want. It's just like if you want to be a professional basketball player, you can't hire someone to shoot practice free throws for you. <laughs> you have to practice the free throws. Yeah. If you want to be the coach of, a, of an all-star team, most likely you have to play the game well first. And so like that's an easy lesson for an executive. If you want your team to do that stuff, you need to know how to do it, prove that it works, and then demonstrate to the company that's a priority and people should feel comfortable doing it. Because yeah. in some companies, the culture is, oh, you posted on LinkedIn, you must be looking for a job. <laughs> yeah. And you get called into HR a couple of days later, which has happened to me before. And then how many people you think at that company are posted on LinkedIn when every time they post on LinkedIn, that happens? Literally zero people. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you, Chris, is I was touching on there for folks who aren't familiar with, you know, where you guys started with Demand Gen Live, it was a little bit into you already posting consistently on LinkedIn. I had posted on LinkedIn for a year before we started that show. Gotcha. And as you mentioned, you know, it started with dozen, couple dozen people there. I think that Q&A format of regular time, we're going to record content. It's going to start with video and we're going to take questions from our ICP. And then those become the prompts for someone who's maybe looking to start out and they say, okay, Chris, I can dedicate this time. I'm going to dedicate time once a week to batch create content and these smaller chunks every day to post the content coming from what's created in, in this batch, but they don't even have 15, 20 people to show up to a Q&A right now. What would you suggest to them to get them started so they're not sitting in a room staring at a camera without prompts to start recording content? What would you recommend if that were the case? If you were committed to it, you'd be able to figure this out on your own, but I'll give you some tips. You could offer a free consulting call to one individual and say, I'm just going to record my answers on my side of the call, nothing about what you're saying. You could go to Reddit or LinkedIn and look at a popular like thought leader on LinkedIn and look at all the comments they get on their posts and pull out questions or topics or things like that based on what's being discussed today. 
you could look at current events about some things that happened and then look at those events and then use that as main inputs. This company just released this new framework. Here's what I think about the framework and here's where I think needs to be improved. If you're committed to the process, there are a million ways to source these insights. So if you're asking yourself these questions and you can't figure it out, like I just gave you a couple of shortcuts, but the mm -hmm. like hard truth that you need to know is if you were really committed, you would have figured this stuff out. Yeah. 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 There's lots of low hanging fruit, no shortage there. From here, Chris, I'd like to kind of transition to those four elements of measuring ROI in this sort of motion, as you've talked about it here. LinkedIn, you guys look at that as as one vehicle, both yourself and your team's activity on LinkedIn, and then the podcast, even though there is a lot of interplay there. So in your post, you talked about self-reported attribution, uh, conversational intelligence tools that ask on a first call with the sales rep, executive market research surveys, and then win-loss analysis. So I'd love to touch on each of these, kind of dig into the how a little bit, and maybe where people, if they're a believer, to your point a second ago, they'll figure it out, but there might be some questions on the how. So with self-reported attribution, let's touch on that as that's you know a yeah. talking point that a lot of people who follow you know, but they may still be hesitating to get started or don't know what steps to take next. Yeah, so let's talk through it. The first major, like some background distinction that people need to know is that there is a very big difference between creating demand and capturing demand. Creating demand, somebody is not interested, aware, or like in consideration of buying from your company or the category of your stuff. And capturing demand, somebody's already looking for your company or your solution. You're trying to convert that into rep, capture that demand and convert it into revenue. They're entirely different things. When you look at how a B2B company measures their go-to-market and their marketing, you'll realize that it's 100% demand capture because all they use is digital touchpoint-based attribution built on how the world worked in 2013. And that's why you don't get podcast, LinkedIn, even YouTube, or a bunch of other influencers, evangelism. You don't get any of that stuff in touchpoint-based attribution because it's a demand creation activity, not a demand capture activity, and companies do not have a measurement system for demand creation. That's the background. So if our strategy is to go out and create demand using these types of channels that get educate buyers and accelerate the amount of people that are in market to buy our stuff, then we need measurement models to do this. And when we think about the measurement model, we can't say, oh, we use attribution over here, so let's figure out how to just tweak the attribution over here and make it multi-touch or influence and use an old system to try and do new stuff. You should look at the new thing and the new problem with fresh eyes. And you should say, what would be the right way to look at this stuff to get the right information? And that's part of what I've done to prove this out, both for my company and hundreds of companies that we've worked with. Step one was a thing called self-reported attribution. B2C companies have used this for decades. And B2B companies maybe used it 20 years ago and things like that, but don't really use it much anymore. And so we brought it back and we tested it on our own website for six months before we ever told anyone that they should be using it. We tested it on our own website and we looked and what did we get when people filled it out? LinkedIn, podcasts, certain people were referring us business, very little Google search or things like that. So we collect that and now we have an understanding, okay, these are the core places where demand is being created or the most impactful, consistent channels that are impacting people to want to buy. So that gave us one good set and our podcast and LinkedIn content are really fucking good. And a lot of people that have a podcast and LinkedIn that never get any of that stuff in self-reported attribution, it's because your stuff isn't that good. 
It's not because self-reported attribution isn't working. It's because your stuff isn't working. There's a hard truth in there. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that's one way. But when we say what we call a hybrid attribution model, it's connecting lots of different data points directly from customers as main inputs to understand what are the key things that are working in your demand creation programs. So self-reported attribution becomes one thing. You have another one where Gong has been experimenting with this and a lot of some other companies have been talking about it, but no one's not very few companies have really operationalized this. I do it qualitatively. So if, if I sit on a sales call, I don't even have to ask people literally tell me like what piece of content they were looking at or what channel they were using or, hey, I've been looking at this for, I've been listening to your podcast for three years. I just changed jobs. Now I want to work with you. I don't even have to ask, they tell you. And so, but now companies have looked at using call recorders to go and record that and look for certain keywords. Like, hey, maybe you have an influencer that you have a big partnership with. And then people are talking about that influencer on the call. And you can use that as a data point to understand, hey, this person is influencing these these types of decisions. So you can look at that as a, as a secondary way, that one harder to operationalize, but seems to be working for companies that put in the effort to do it. Then you have, whether it's primary market research, interviewing people that are not in buying cycles, which I do a lot. I talk to tons of people that are not trying to buy from me just to get insights and things like that. And I ask them, how, how'd you hear about us? What have you been doing? How do you know about my company? What other things, just primary market research. You can run surveys as another form of qualitative or quantitative market research, which I think a company like Winter should figure out how to operationalize so companies can do in a very consistent way and get those insights. You have win-loss analysis, standard product marketing practice, never used in go-to-market, but why do we win or lose these deals? And using that as a feedback loop to understand how should we adjust our marketing strategy with all of this data that then doesn't get processed in a SaaS tool. It gets processed in our brain and we're combining a bunch of different data points. And then we use that to build a strategy that our competitors wouldn't build because we came up with it with customer data in our brain, not a SaaS tool that everyone else is using that has, like, has very limited actual measurement and none of the inputs come directly from customers. And so there's a couple of key shifts. The key shifts in order to adopt something like this, one, recognize that demand creation and demand capture are two entirely different things and that B2B companies only measure demand capture. Yeah, you're totally right there, Chris. This shift in thinking has to kind of precipitate all of this. And I want to get to how you guys look at this mixture of these four, like kind of what's your rhythm of gathering these data from these four different points? How do you operationalize some of it? Number two on your list with conversational intelligence tools like Gong, I just want to encourage everybody, if you're using a tool like that, you know, operationalizing it and completely automating it isn't completely there, but that's kind of your point as well. But you can set up those trackers of that influencer's name, the name of your podcast, even just, you know, creating LinkedIn as a tracker and going in and looking at how many times those words have been used by your prospects, especially on that initial discovery call is going to give you some data to go off of in this framework that you're talking about in bringing together these four different ways to look at measuring the ROI in your brains through agglomeration of methods, not just one individual. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. And to be clear, we do not operationalize all four of these measurements at our company. There are options and there are almost infinite more options that you could use in a hybrid attribution model of ways to collect primary market research and use that in and hopefully vendors start to build more options and operationalize it. I think there's a couple of key things that are helpful to note here. I think that there's a difference between collecting the data and then looking at the data and then building the strategy. So I think there's almost different points here and different responsibilities. 
I typically find that having one person in charge of the strategy ends up being the best way to approach a go-to-market strategy. Who is in charge of what we do? A lot like strong strategic CMOs will definitely be able to fill this role and be the CEO's number two. If you have a weak CMO, then it's going to end up being the chief revenue officer or the head of sales. But there's a difference between building the strategy and then having a sales leader execute against that full strategy. So generally, that's how you would see it with a strong CMO. So somebody's got to be able to say, how does somebody collect the insights and then present them to me in a way that I can use to make decisions? And then how do I use all the insight to put together the strategy and make decisions? And so collecting it, we've already fully automated self-reported attribution companies. Almost no companies do it. We have it documented in all of our research. We've built a Salesforce app that does the exact same thing that helps companies be able to collect that in a standardized way. And it also does a ton more stuff, but that's one thing that it would do. There are other tools out there that do the same thing. There's plenty of ways to operationalize that. The problem is that companies haven't fully bought into it yet. There's a bunch of people out there that'll be like, oh, like, don't use it. Somebody might forget what they did. It's like, well, if they forgot, it, it must have not been that important. Um, <laughs> so, but anyway, they're comparing it against attribution. It's not the same. When you think about like the call and then all the call recordings and things like that, I think if I was doing this at a 500 person company, it would be self-reported attribution, number one, market research surveys for both qualitative and quantitative insights. What sources of information do you trust? What places do you look when you're trying to buy this type of technology? Have you heard of this brand, us? Where'd you hear about it? Have you heard of this brand, our main competitor? Where'd you hear about them? And I would be using that survey as the second input to derive my strategy. It's not for attribution. That strategy is not for attribution. It's to drive strategy. And I think that companies mix the two together a lot where attribution is the only thing that helps them decide strategy, especially in go-to-market. In product, they're way smarter. In product, they're way smarter. They get customer insights directly. They run focus groups. They do an alpha group. They do a beta. They have a customer advisory board to talk about their product. They've figured out how to use customer insights to build the right stuff for their customer. But we need to now use the same process to build the right go-to-market machine to get and keep and retain and expand customers. And so those are the first two layers that I would do self-reported attribution and then like market research surveys that happen on a periodic basis. Yeah. And I know you mentioned, okay, this is number two, if I'm at a, you know, 500 person tech company or something like that. But you even mentioned at a smaller team within Refine Labs, those surveys and those conversations with folks who fit your ICP, they are buyers at target accounts. They're not necessarily customers. They're not prospects in an active opportunity you've still found a way to make those regular conversations as part of your rhythm, right? You could do that as a 10-person company if you were committed to it. The 500 really wasn't uh, maybe not the right qualifier there. Those two things you could do at any company for a relatively low cost. And in terms of the ROI of like deploying the right resources in the right places um, and making the right decisions using cust like a lot of customer insights, it would be a, a nominal expense relative to the improvements in how the go-to-market investments are spent today. So yeah, I would see that those as two, two things that people could walk away and literally do next week if they wanted to. Yeah, yeah. What do you think are some of the pitfalls? As you mentioned, a lot of people are still not there with adopting self-reported attribution, but say they're over that hurdle and they're starting down that path. What are some of the the common mistakes? Are they still pulling an old mindset into it? Are they you know, missing some easy operational things that they could be doing once they become a believer and start down that path? Just wanted to touch on that for a second before we wrap, Chris. 
Yeah, let's talk about it. So number one problem when you implement this is that you have a dirty funnel that your main part of your website, maybe you have display ads running max conversions on GDN and you get 3,500 demo requests every month, but 2,800 of them are total trash. And you're like, okay, our conversion rate is only 3% on our demo form. Your demo form conversion rate to qualified opportunity should be like 40 to 60%. And so you have a dirty funnel then most of the stuff that you get is literally spam or garbage in that form, like bots fill it out. And so then you look at it and you're like, oh, I'm not getting anything valuable. Yeah, you are. Your fucking leads suck. Your funnel's dirty. Like every time someone says it's not working, it actually is. It's just telling them a story that they don't want to hear. The next thing is that they only look at the data and track it at the lead level. And so imagine that dirty funnel. You got 2,800 in garbage. Then you analyze that data and you group it and you make a pie chart. And then 80% of it is literally spam or it says online research or something like that. And they say, oh, 80% of our leads are coming from online research. This looks exactly the same as what HubSpot's telling us. We don't need to do this. Track it deeper into qualified opportunity, what we call hero pipeline, and then at close one revenue and the data is 100% different. And so looking at this at close one revenue and qualified ops requires some marketing operations work to actually track it. But that's where you get the valuable stuff. It doesn't matter how someone said they heard about you. If right after they fill out the form, they're a bot or they never convert, they don't answer your emails, it's not that valuable. Um, and so looking at it all the way through, the third mistake is that companies try to use it in the same way that they use digital touchpoint-based attribution as a way to prove ROI, not to make strategy decisions. And so those end up being the three core mistakes yeah. that I see for people that are bought into it, but can't seem to really like get it figured out. Even there are great companies with CMOs that I've been friends with for four years that implemented this in 2021 and still make all three of those mistakes. So yeah, the ingrained thinking about how we measure and report in B2B is so ingrained from the investors and the board to the executive team, to the individual contributors and all of those stakeholders are looking for it in the same way, MQL and channel source. And at some point, as that machine breaks, which it's breaking across tons of companies right now, to a level where companies have to say, we're not sure this is working anymore. Let's go and look for a new solution. And until that move fully happens, I think companies will continue to play in the middle here. Oh, we think this is cool, but we're not actually going to use it in the way that it's intended. So we'll just put this on and collect some information and probably not use it in the right way. And then revert back to just looking at our like caliber mind dashboard about attribution. Yeah. It goes back to what you said earlier about, oh, we're not seeing any attribution to LinkedIn or our podcast. Well, that's because the content isn't good. Same thing here when we're looking at where did these leads come from? Oh, we're getting garbage. Well, the leads aren't quality to begin with. Chris, you know, we're in the midst of Q4. Lots of marketers are looking ahead at 2024. What are some of the things you think are going to be key for marketers to think about as they're planning for next year, whether it relates to what we're talking about here with their attribution model and their strategy? I love what you said about borrowing from products. So often we look at things to measure ROI, and then that just by default informs our strategy. So they're not kind of separating that out, that measuring ROI from directing their strategy. So a lot of marketers probably listening to this are thinking about their strategy for 2024, what are some final thoughts you want to leave with folks today as they look ahead to next year? Run a data analysis across all the investments that you've made in marketing over the past four to six fiscal quarters 
and track the effectiveness of the ones that are focused on demand capture against close one revenue pipeline and sales velocity and customer acquisition cost. Almost all the B2B marketing investment goes to demand capture. So you like can track it in that way. It's let's collect a lead and then let's either do something to nurture that lead so we can cold call them or let's just cold call them straight away and see if we can get a meeting. So that last touch, that lead point will then have an outcome. We got a lead, we invested sales team time, we either converted it into a meeting revenue, da, 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 or it was closed lost and it was a waste of our advertising dollars and our sales team's time. And when you do that 50 or 100,000 times over at a big company, you realize there's like there's patterns in the data and there's huge amounts of investment and waste, both in human capital and in marketing and sales programs. And so run the analysis. And if you're running a million dollars in LinkedIn ads to get to run lead gen campaigns, don't get the influence revenue report from LinkedIn to tell you whether or not they're working or not. You're not trying to influence revenue. You're trying to collect the leads. You can cold call it. So scrutinize the program in the way that it deserves to be. So then you run that, you get the million dollars in LinkedIn leads, then look at how many convert to qualified pipeline and revenue, calculate the advertising or program cost payback period. I did this yesterday for a company that literally spent a million dollars a year in the past four quarters on LinkedIn ads. And they had a 56 month CAC payback on just the advertising. Oh, that's not I wish that no marketing headcount, no sales headcount, yeah. no SDRs included in that calculation. You're at 80 months. Mm-hmm. It's longer than the longest car loan they'll give you to pay back the cost <laughs> of getting a customer with your LinkedIn lead gen program. And so like run the analysis and look at it for yourself and say, are these strategies working or not? And then what you need to do with that data, which sometimes will come CMO down, but oftentimes need to come individual contributor up. It's what I did in 2017. I looked at the data. I said, our strategy is busted for these reasons. Here's what we need to change. We need to change the KPIs that we measure, which then downstream is going to change the strategy that we deploy both digitally in the field and with our reps and SDRs. Change, adjust the KPIs. If you don't adjust the KPIs, you're going to get stuck in the same box that you're already in, is the thing. If you keep measuring on MQLs and you keep using direct attribution, it forces you into certain things. So you must convince leadership or have ideally have leadership know better and look at the data themselves to know this isn't working. We need to change the KPIs to align marketing activities against revenue, not leads. Yeah, Fundamentally it, simple. Once the KPIs change, it allows you to rethink the strategy and actually do things that work better. So now we're going to use customer in the third one I had is customer insights, get the customer insights. Then you find out our CFO audience gets influenced by these four podcasts. And they watch this TV show. And they do this. So we're going to run mountain or connected TV ads against that TV show that they watch and we were able to target that they're a CFO, they work in finance, we'll run advertising, or we're going to get our CEO talking on these four podcasts, and we're gonna be able to do that. We're going to x, y and z. Yeah, and you build your strategy around that. And then you say, Okay, based on this strategy, what is the appropriate way to think about attribution? Yeah. <laughs> and then you build your attribution mechanisms around your strategy, not the other way around. Almost yes. every B2B yes. company builds their revenue strategy around attribution. And what we need to do is we need to build the strategy based on customer insights and then build our attribution strategy around our go-to-market strategy. It is wild. I've never said it that clearly before. It's cool that we came up with that, but that's really what's going on. Yeah. So, yeah.
I was going to say, neither one of us can drop the mic, but that was a great mic drop to, <laughs> to end it on today. I think you summarized it really, really well there. And the problem that we're solving for here, it's not just about the attribution. It's about the strategy that's leading to what attribution we're seeing, whether we're measuring the right things or the wrong things. You've got to look at it full circle. Well, Chris, mm -hmm. for anyone who's not already following you, not already consuming your content and that coming out from Refine Labs, which is probably most of our audience here, but if they're not, what call outs do you want to make here so they can stay engaged with you and your team? Yeah, feel free to uh, check out the B2B Revenue Vitals podcast available on Apple and Spotify. And then I'm most active on LinkedIn, but you can follow me across all socials, whatever one you prefer to use. Chris Walker 171. I love it. Chris, thanks so much for being my guest today, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Logan. Great to hang with you again.